Hello, and welcome to the first ResiTalks podcast. I'm Emma Rossa, the residential editor at EG. A few weeks ago, I wrote about office to resi developer Magna Capital, which is fighting to avoid insolvency with loan note investors set to potentially lose their life savings. Magna aren't the only one. Under the pressures of the pandemic, elsewhere, PD schemes funded by the man on the street are failing, and the FCA is clamping down on risky and even fraudulent operations. In this episode, I talk to consultant and fund expert John Forbes, London agent Jonathan Vandermolen, and the BPF's head of policy, Ian Fletcher, to try to understand just how and why retail investors are getting burnt by PD and what that means for the industry. Just to start off, um, kind of let's start with the money then. John, what are these mini bonds? How are they sold? What's wrong with them? What's going on there? So, I mean, the regulation has moved to block the sale of these um, bonds to retail investors. So, I mean, it was um, up until November 2019, it was possible to um, market um, debt to directly to retail investors. So people were marketing these mini bonds as a way of fundraising um, to retail investors to get around the restrictions on retail investors being able to invest in mm-hmm. um, unregulated property funds. Um, the um, FCA had been um, warned uh, in 2017 that you know, people were using this to circumvent the regulation, that they were investing in high, highly risky uh, and potentially fraudulent property schemes. LCF went, which is the the one that's been very high profile, went bust at the beginning of 2019. Um, But it wasn't until November 2019 that the FCA um, brought in a temporary ban. Um, And then that temporary ban was only made um, permanent um, in January. And the the um, it's been subject to a, a major investigation which has found the FCA uh, incredibly wanting and that um, the person who um, wrote that report uh, Elizabeth Gloucester was by the Treasury Committee earlier this week uh, and it's a complete indictment of the the FCA and then the the sort of ongoing scandal catches um, Andrew Bailey is now the governor of the Bank of England, who was the head of the FCA at mm. the time, and he's up in front of the Treasury Committee on uh, Monday. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously I've been watching kind of the LCF and I never really tied this together with what was happening within property. And actually, John, when you sent a link over, no, it wasn't a link. It was sorry, it was your um, it was your newsletter in December. Some of the comments talking about the type of property investments um, and how risky they were. Um, it was was quite noticeable, um, uh, to be honest, and, and, and I just had guessed maybe personally I'd not tied the two together. But w- how are they able to mark and why would people even want to invest in risky property? Um, they get rich, quick, quick schemes offering implausible rates of interest. So, you know, if, um, if you're offering guaranteed returns of 12 to 18 percent then and people believe that they'll invest and because the the bonds themselves and the underlying vehicles were completely unregulated. There was no no supervision over this. Um, and as I said, the FCA had been warned that they were um, at best highly speculative and high risk and at worst fraudulent. Yeah. Um, and they shut the stable door once the horse had bolted. Yeah. 
so they have now belatedly introduced a ban, but uh, this should have happened in 2017. Yeah, I guess between 2017 and the ban that's now sort of come into force, possibly now we're starting to see the effects of, you know, before, you know, the money was coming together and, the, and, and now we're seeing maybe how it's been spent. And, you know, one thing that you've all pointed out to me is that, you know, not not all of the mini bond kind of investors and retail investors equate to PD investments and PD schemes that have gone bust. But there is definitely a kind of a crossover there. So I've seen, you know, different developers that I've written about, um, most recently Magna, um, but in the past, one of the most high profile being inspired. Jonathan, we've spoken about this in the past as well. And, and more recently that maybe there's a bit more happening kind of in the London market specifically now around some of those PD schemes. So what are you seeing? Um, I was gonna say, I've, just, I've just received your advert for Bracknell. Oh, yes. Another cha- another challenging case we've got from a receiver. So look, g- generally permitted development has been very popular for developers because it's a much quicker route from a planning perspective. From buyers, um, it's been popular because the unit sizes are generally small. Um, a lot of people have done micro units, which has basically made the units very affordable and given people the opportunity to get on the ladder, whether it be in London or outside London, for much less money than a regular flat that would cost. The issues that we're seeing with PD at the moment um, is because of what's happened with Grenfell and fire, a lot of mm-hmm. the buildings are no longer fit for purpose when it comes to residential conversion. Mm. Um, a lot of buildings that have been converted are either on industrial estates or on the edge of industrial estates. So for example, the building that John received, I think you probably got it as well, Emma, Technology House, which is in Bracknell, um, is about a mile outside of the town centre. The developer put the flats on the market, agreed 20 deals over a weekend, but none of the building societies would provide mortgages. Um, And I think a lot of the building societies and a lot of the lenders are now looking at these buildings a bit more carefully and saying that they're office buildings. You know, they're yeah. not really fit for purpose for long term residential why, because of the way they're built. But why has this changed? Because, you know, a lot of these developers, when they were out raising raising finance and whether or not they were doing that through a loan note with a retail investor or doing it in another way. And, um, you know, they would have done that put, uh, under the understanding that they've got an exit and now they don't. So what, what happened and what changed? Well, I think what changed is, number one, building societies. So mm-hmm. if you can't get mortgages, you can't sell the flats. Yeah. Quite a lot of the people that have bought permitted development are investors because the returns and the yields that they create, because the units are smaller, are probably better than new build residential. Mm-hmm. From a development perspective and the cost of that development, build cost is quicker because you're converting a building, which is much quicker than doing new build. So the returns could have been a lot more attractive. And, you know, just to, as an example, we're, uh, we've just been appointed to sell a site in Watford that's got planning mm-hmm. for 36 flats. The resales are probably five to 550 a foot, depending whether you're a buyer or a seller. Mm-hmm. We've got another scheme we're looking at in Watford, which is a permitted development scheme of 45 flats. Yep. The sales values there, according to the local agents, are £700 a foot because the units are smaller, which means the capital values are smaller. Okay. So from a developer's perspective, sales values have generally been greater in permitted development because the units 
are smaller and more affordable. So I think that's what, you know, the developers were attracted because you can't really get refused from planning. The overall cost, if you're buying, if you buy a site without planning these mm-hmm. days, two years to get yeah. planning, two years to build. Yeah. If you're buying a permitted development scheme, six months to get planning, 12 months to build. So it's probably taking you half the time, which means the return on capital on paper is much more attractive. Yeah. What a lot of these developers are finding, and you know, Magna are a, a good example. Yeah. And certainly what we've seen in the last 12 months is build costs. You know, I was just talking to a chap called Mark Henry, Henry Construction, who's you know one of the sort of biggest mid-tier contractors around. Build costs have gone up 10 to 12 percent in the last year. Mm-hmm. There are still issues, uh, a lot of which are COVID related, um, in terms of imports from Europe. You know, it's much harder to get things in the country at the moment, which means the whole process has been slowed down. Yeah. So it sounds like so you've got developers who are, you know, attracted by this very high value per square foot, very low barrier to entry. So you've got a real mixed bag in there of, um, you know, because there are developers that have done PD well and have done PD without, you know, going to inexperienced investors with with the mini bonds as well absolutely but you have got a lot of the others as on the other side who um you know they're working with investors that don't know what they're investing in they're they're buying things with the kind of lure by this very high value but not necessarily understanding all of those barriers and all of those um those challenges which have then sort of kind of been impeded by the pandemic is what it sounds like Yeah. And I think a lot of these investors are, you know, everybody is desperately looking for a return on their money because we're in a low interest rate environment. And I suspect what most of these investors don't do is they don't look into the detail of the developer or the development. So, you know, any of us being property people, the first thing we would do is we'd look at the comparable evidence to make sure what they're saying is correct. We would look into the developer and that developer's track record to see what they've been doing. But I suspect most retail investments don't do that. They're convinced by whoever the introducer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these guys are good. The deal's good. We checked it out and you'll be fine. You know, there's yeah. another fund, which I think I've mentioned to you in the past. Uh, I won't mention them by name, but based out of this country uh-huh. who have been charging investors 7% on the money that they give them to invest. They've been putting money into deals. A lot of the deals have gone wrong, but the investment manager doesn't have a problem because it's not their money and they don't have their own money in the deal. So they're making money anyway. Right, I'm racking my brains trying to remember who on earth you're talking about and why I can't. Um, And I can't, and I can't. I've made a note because I want to ask. I can say who it is, but I don't want their name repeated on the podcast. Fair enough. Um, that's a really interesting point, I think, as well, with kind of the overseas um, and one to come back to as well. Ian, you, we've kept you very quiet for a while, but I w- want to bring you into the conversation and see this week, you know, while also all of this has been happening this week, the BPF has really come up with quite a strong stance on PD that I've not really seen come from you before. I mean, uh, what, what's your sort of feeling and why are you speaking out now about it? You know, that, that, that uh, strength of feelings, you know, reflection of our members and um, yeah, we'd sat down with them a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, the context is uh, that government is uh, consulting on um, significantly broadening uh, PDR. 
allowing pretty much any commercial building to convert to residential. Um, and uh, through what is uh, Class E, the new the new class for uh, most commercial uses that was introduced just at the, the start of September. Yeah. Um, I, I think the as it's been discussed, yeah, I've been to PDRs that are good, I've been to, to some that are bad. I think um, you know, in the residential sector, yeah, some of our members have used them uh, in the past, Office de Resi uh, for built to rent developments. Yeah, and they, they, they've been excellent. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, a great strength of those has been, been their sort of location, They're very close to stations, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. 60s, 70s office blocks. Um, yeah, the, the big concern I have about PDRs has been touched on to some extent by Jonathan, and that's the sort of locational context that uh, you know, there is no no control of that. And yeah, you, the um, cases that you see in the media are often those um, examples where you are getting you know, residential in the, mid, in the middle of an office park, you know, where there isn't the services, there isn't the public transport. You know, they're not great places to live. They're often used by local authorities for temporary accommodation. And um, yeah, that is, um, I think, you know, creating quite a lot of reputational damage yeah. for the development industry as a whole. So, and kick kick forward now to the sort of Class E and the proposal. Um, you know, it's taking a lot more PDR into places like town centres and, you know, significant fears that that breaks up retail frontage. Um, you know, when you're looking at sort of community retail, you know, your, your local corner shop. Um, yeah. Yeah, we've all all relied on over the last nine ten months. Yeah, there is the the opportunity there to to, you know, to flip it to residential um, and to potentially lose yeah, those, those community services. Um, I think more, more generally, it sort of goes against um, a lot of the the government's town centre agenda over the last decade since uh, the delightful sort of Mary Portis um, sort of set out a decade ago. Yeah, that um, yeah, we were seeking to create diversity of use on our on our high street, and encourage some of those low value uses into the high street, yeah. cultural uses, creches, healthcare. Um, that's all going to make our our high street sustainable. And yeah, the values in residential in some places, not all places, I think, will will lead to a, a hollowing out of a lot of that. I guess one thing that would probably need to be considered with all of this as well is, you know, what do the, what the banks think at the end of the day as well. So even if you, you know, you you create these homes and and they're they're poor quality and it makes the industry look bad, um, but you've also got that that ultimate. If you're ending up with, you know, a, a scheme in Bracknell that you can't get uh, or or wherever that you can't get any mortgages, not only does it create poor housing, it creates poor housing that will. What where does that then go? I suppose um, is is a challenge for the industry which kind of Jonathan's talking about there, where does that go? go it, you know, the only place it can, it will go to an investor. From our perspective, we're seeing a, a lot of the buildings that are bought for permitted development are being bought by investors. So they're buying the building, getting the PD rights and renting them, yeah. as I said earlier, because they show a superior yield to residential. So I agree long term, I think that's where it's going to go. Yeah, you know, the BPS kind of, you know, talking about PD, um, some of that sort of um, kind of sparked by the government wanting to to see an increase in that development. You haven't spoken so much previously on on the mini bonds. Is that an area of focus? Is that something that that you feel the kind of your members are talking about kind of internally as well? It's not. I mean, clearly, the vast majority of our members are engaged in yeah, in, in regulated products. So, yeah. Uh, 
it's not something that's high on our agenda. Yeah, I know you know, nothing against retail bonds per se, and I know you know, yeah. in previous um, downturns, the likes of housing associations have used you know, retail bonds to raise to raise money. But I suspect that's been through you know, regulated markets, not mm-hmm. through uh, regulated products. So um, yeah, clearly, uh, from what I'm picking up on the on the on the, the, the core here, you know, concerns um, if people are putting money into things that um, they're not understanding or um, you know, they, they don't have the protections that they would have through a regulated product. So it seems that there maybe is a bit of a running um, kind of thread here for, for, for both the raising of finance through bonds, but also developing um, homes as well, is that regulation maybe isn't such a bad thing? No, I don't think it is. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, and then, yeah that, that's, um, I think yeah, the regulation that the UK has is one of the reasons that we are so attractive to investment, not only from the UK, but, but internationally. That, uh, yeah, they, they, the yeah, investors know that um, yeah, the, what they're investing is is, is going to offer adequate adequate protection. I mean, John, what do you think about that? I mean, I think there is a, a reason why there is some crossover, which is a, a sort of a, a bit of a Venn diagram of the crooked. That um, you know, both the both the 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 way that they can build these things and the way that they can you know, raise finance in an unregulated manner to um, encourage people into things that are speculative or even fraudulent it's that it's yeah. the same the, un, the unscrupulous characters are attracted to that bit in the middle where the two circles of the venn diagram cross over i do like that although probably need to add the caveat that not all pd developers are unscrupulous um although and there may be all, many and not all retail bonds raised by scrupulous people too but they you know, both of them have a it's a, a significant gap in the yeah. regulation where those who want to exploit it can yeah. and, and you know that's why there there is it's an area where there is some crossover i mean the fca putting its foot down now on those on the mini bonds um how, how does that even work in practice you've got a whole industry of kind of these introducers sort of built up as well how do you even police that well that, i mean that that's what the role of the fca is and they've been yeah. very successful in um, clamping down on the sale of unsuitable investment products to retail investors in the past. So they they previously clamped down on the the sale of funds that were unsuitable to retail investors, so uh, non um, mainstream pooled investment products, which resulted in the the disappearance of that market. They're doing the same with this. You know, there is there's fallout in in the short term because. Um, the businesses that have been relying on that to fund their businesses are cut, that that source of funding is cut off from them. In the longer term, it, it's entirely beneficial that retail investors are protected. The sad thing on this one is that the FCA, for whatever reason, was so slow to respond, which is why you've now had this major independent inquiry into it, which mm. has been absolutely critical of the the fca's performance on this um, and that's kind of working its way through now um with the treasury hearings on earlier this week and next week i'm not an expert on the fca or on the role but i think one of the key things is if you are raising money there has to be transparency on the success and the failures of the vehicles that are trying to raise the money 
And that's something the government kind of talks a lot about having more transparency in general, more transparency into um, what land registries, ownership and the planning process as well. But I guess it's step by step. And I don't know, Ian, you know, kind of when it comes to transparency in terms of, um, you know, property investment, um, you know, what, what level is it at the moment? Is it enough? Does it need to be more? I think that, uh, yeah, you can, I suppose, always be more transparent, but um, yeah, that uh, yeah, transparency certainly in sort of regulated markets is, is, yeah, is pretty good. And uh, yeah. uh, that, um, yeah, that is um, yeah, partly driven by the industry itself, but, but part, partly driven by the, by the regulator. So um, yeah, I'm not going to, uh, I think, beat the industry up over, over transparency, but um, you know, clearly um, yeah, there are aspects of how property companies operate that I think are becoming more transparent. Yeah, there's a lot of um, ESG reporting now and, and things like yeah. that yeah, that supports the you know, the traditional more sort of financial information that um, that our members provide. And it's not it's not without its pay. You know, in terms I know, I know when um, you know, we started to see investment into built to rent, there was yeah. you know, one or two model business models that sought to tap into the retail market and, and uh, yeah, to get to get regulated okay. you know, took um, yeah, pro- probably a year. Yeah, it is um, a painful process, but but, but one that um, I think is is worthwhile in the long run. The vast majority of investment in real estate by retail investors is through the the, the channels designed for it through through funds set up that are suitable for being marketed to retail investors. Yeah. It's just that this. The, the rules on mini bonds that weren't designed for investment in, in real estate at all have um, effectively created a way for, for those who wanted to to circumvent the restrictions on what you can market to retail investors. Mm. Um, that, I mean, that's why the, the FCA moved to, moved to block it. It just took them a long time from being told that there was a major problem here to doing something about it. Yeah. And it's, when I say major problem, it's not, there's not a huge volume of it no but there are you know those those unscrupulous people who did use this have effectively defrauded people of their life savings and I guess maybe it's just now that we're sort of maybe starting to see um the greater sort of extent of that it may not be industry-wide but there are those pockets and they're sort of coming to light now exactly and the reason I'm concerned about these things is I don't like anything that sort of tarnishes the reputation of investment management in real estate where yeah. there's sort of luring stories about fraudulent schemes being marketed. Well on that note and sort of to leave on more of a positive sort of going forwards you know what what's can you expect happening now kind of in your each of your kind of areas of specialty John this area that has previously sort of harmed the reputation of real estate investment you know hoping that that is sort of cleared up yeah, and the and the bigger story is the the um, ongoing proposals for changes to the the funds that retail investors are supposed to use to invest in real estate. So the yeah. changes to um, non-usage retail schemes, the, the the property funds for retail investors, and that we're we're expecting the sort of latest um, news from the FCA on that and the and the um, the Bank of England short so that's been a a somewhat painful process since 2016 that that's been gradually moving forward but uh, hopefully that is coming towards a resolution too.
Okay, so the FCA in lockdown has been, um, you know, really, really keeping quite busy on 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 all fronts of retail investment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's taken them a while to get there because yeah. of all the other things on their plate um, with Brexit, etc. But um, hopefully, we are getting to the point where um, they a are coming to a resolution on this and b coming to a resolution that actually works for the industry. All right. Actually, I'm going to go to Ian and um, and ask you kind of what you think coming next, particularly after your comments kind of this week. I think uh, yeah, clearly we await the government's decision on the PDR. Um, yeah, yeah we'd, we'd rather see it was um, amended or withdrawn. Um, if amended, then yeah, I think the key thing for government would be to have some sort of uh, prior approval process built in for um, retail frontage and protecting yeah. that. Um, but but all of this is just a stopgap. Um, you know, the government's long-term aspirations are uh, its zoning proposals and the planning white paper. Um, yeah, and I have no no objections to those because they have that uh, that locational context um, that I said yeah. is missing in PDR. So yeah, I think in the long run, um, a bit more flexibility within areas is coming, and yeah, that's probably a good thing. That will definitely be another conversation as well to have, and I'm sure that Jonathan's got so many opinions to share on the planning process. But sticking with the the jumble of topics that we've managed to squeeze into today's chat. Yeah, I think look, there is definitely a place for permitted development in the future of, of, of residential. I think it is definitely partly political, and the reason permitted development has become such an important part of the residential market is because of the massive failure of the planning system. There's a massive shortfall in the supply of residential and more importantly, particularly in the environment we're going through, affordable residential, which is why permitted development is playing its part. So whether we like it or not, permitted development in the short term is here to stay because it's filling the the shortfall of residential that should be created in the market. In terms of investors... I think, you know, property is like any other asset class. You know, if something looks too good to be true, then generally it is. And if you look at the return that a private developer might be offering on their money in comparison with a well-respected property fund, you know, somebody like a LaSalle Investment Management, the gap is probably big enough where people should realise, you know, the bigger the returns you're being offered, the chances are the risks are also going to be bigger. I guess coming back to kind of that was kind of John's initial point as well, um, and it was something that I'd seen kind of in the the FCA documents. It is that if it's if it is looking too good to be true, it, it probably is. Bit of a just throwing out kind of a, the planning bashing just at the end. What what a note to end on there. So so much more food for thought and for a chat for another day as well. I'm going to end it all here and thank you so much for joining in my first podcast. It's been a great chat. Cheers, guys. <laughs>